But there's also people in our congregations who have obviously read the news, they know what's going on, and they really want to know, well, I believe what Christians have always believed, does my vicar. Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and I am here with J.D. Koch of St. Luke's Anglican Church on Hilton Head Island, South Carolina. Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, is still making his way home from Africa. So traveling mercies to Matt and Anne. J.D., how are you today? Doing great, Nick. Thanks. Good to be back. Well, this week at Stand Firm, we're happy to welcome a guest, the Reverend Tim Vasby Burney, vicar of St. George's Church in Shrewsbury, which, according to Google Maps, looks like it's a little over an hour west of Birmingham in the UK. Uh, JD, Matt, and I have been podcasting from GAFCON all of last week, spent a lot of time talking about Christianity in England, the Church of England. Uh, we've had people on the podcast before, like Lee Gatiss and Calvin Robinson. But we asked him to come on to give us the perspective of the everyday English vicar, the goings-on of the church there. What does the controversial synod vote mean for normal churches? What's life like for a Church of England evangelical? So, Tim, great to have you on Stand Firm. It's great to be here. Thank you. It's, um, there's so much going on, isn't there, in the, the whole Anglican Communion and, and the Church of England. I think it's easy for big churches to get the headlines and regular churches like ours to it's slightly forgotten so um but the, the battle is much real here as it is in the in the big churches well why don't you tell us about your regular church a little bit about you and and what's happening there so um i grew up in a christian family um lots of different churches i went to methodist baptist church of wales church of england but never really discovered a church that taught the scriptures um and that's kind of the long the, the short version of why i'm ordained is because I discovered that the scriptures are really powerful and they're amazing and they build up churches. And I, it dawned on me that all the churches I've been to as a child or a young, um, as a teenager, they just needed someone to teach the Bible, to open it up and show them Jesus from the pages of the scriptures. And um, I wanted to go to those sorts of churches where people hadn't been teaching the scriptures and open up the Bible, herald Jesus, and kind of see what happens. So I've been in, in two parishes um, as vicar. I'm in a second parish here. And it's it's a very average Church of England parish. The age demographic is skewed very highly. Lots of the congregation um, have never really read the Bible much for themselves. Evangelism mission is just not really part of the culture. Um, the vicar might do that, but ordinary folk don't. And um, that's actually where most of the Church of England is at. And so when we when we enter the kind of battles about human sexuality and marriage, we're kind of starting in a strange position because, well, the, the battle comes to us and we're still trying to convince our, our congregations that the Bible might be God's word. Hmm. Now, where I am here in Shrewsbury, I've been here, um, it's Shrewsbury or Shrewsbury. There's a real debate about how you pronounce it. <laughs> I might try and do both for the sake of the locals. Centuries um, old feuding. Yeah, that's right. Scrobs, I, I think Scrobsburg is the original type, uh, um, pronunciation if you go back a thousand years. So the congregation I'm, I'm at here, very, very friendly congregation when I arrived, a real mix of people, um, some who'd been uh, quite well taught, most who hadn't. Um, by the grace of God, we've seen people grow in faith. There's a nice core of the church now who love Jesus, who love getting the Bible open. And a few people have joined the church because that's what they were wanting to 
to look that's when they moved to the town they wanted to find a church like that but we're still a very regular parish church we are over the past six years when they have been deliberating this living love and faith document and all the various goings on over there how clued in were you as a vicar slash your parish um like what walk us through a little bit of that i mean because we we similarly um have to debate, you know, or, or at least have to juggle how much of a kind of the internal church politics or internal church discussion that needs to be communicated to your kind of average parishioner on a on a weekly basis. Um, what was that like for for you personally or for people in your orbit? I've been quite careful, and I, in hindsight, I wonder I've been too careful, too slow about addressing some of these issues from the pulpit directly. I think. The vision of marriage and sexuality that Jesus gives is glorious and wonderful, but unless people have some foundations in place, they're not going to see that. So in our small group kind of Bible study context, we have had Bible studies on what marriage is, on looking at the chapters of 1 and 2 Corinthians and so on. From the pulpit, I've wanted to emphasize time and time again that uh, Jesus is good news. That's my slogan. Jesus is good news. The Bible is true. And when the Bible differs from the way of the world, Let's go with the way of the Bible. Yeah. Um, now, I remember somebody left the church fairly early after arriving because when they heard me say that, they thought I was saying uh, same-sex marriages are wrong. And um, I, I'm a traditionalist in that point of view. And I said to them, well, it's not what I was teaching from the pulpit. It is what I'm saying. <laughs> um, I'm trying to, trying to prepare the ground for knowing <laughs> that these things will have to be talked about. So I think with some of the... So the congregation is just trying to convince them the basics with those who've shown an interest and a hunger to grow deeper. It's been easy with them to really get into the debates that we find ourselves in. Um, I didn't get involved with LLF uh, directly, um, but we were doing our Bible studies on sexuality and marriage at the same time. Um, I didn't want to use the LLF material, particularly myself. Um, I didn't want to get people taught. When that vote came down, then the relatively recent one um, was your was your parish surprised, or was your diocese kind of in turmoil? Or I mean, you know, inquiring minds want to know uh, sort of how how that how that was received. Yeah, so um, I'll give you an example. So our church council, uh, PCC, I think you call it the vestry. We hadn't uh, debated these issues as a church council, not least because that's not really what the church council is about. So at my most recent church council, I said, this is kind of hard for me to try and get you up to speed. This has been part of my context for 20 years. And for some of you, you've never thought about it before. I'm trying to get people up to speed in a, in a gracious, patient way. And yet recognizing that we can no longer duck the issue. We can no longer, I can no longer go kind of step by step from Jesus is true. The Bible is God's word. Marriage is a picture of Christ in the church and step by step towards what the Bible says. Suddenly we had to debate it very quickly. And there were a few people on my church council who were not happy at all. Where there's where others who have been coming to midweek Bible studies uh, were supportive already. So it's that's the kind of tension we find ourselves in. Yeah. And, and in many local churches, real divisions are coming to the surface, which is kind of necessary and unavoidable. And sad and painful at the same time. Yeah. It reminds me of um, what happened in the Episcopal Church back in 2003 when Gene Robinson was elected. And all of a sudden, 
you know, what was going on up in New Hampshire had affected what was going on down in Baton Rouge, like where my grandparents were at St. James, Baton Rouge. And, and all of a sudden the, the vicars in the various places across, um, you know, the enormity of us had to confront this question in a way that, um, some of them were prepared for, and some of them had prepared their congregation for, and some of them had not only not prepared themselves, but their congregation was even less prepared. And, but nevertheless, yeah. there it was. And so, you know, in very fairly short order, uh, which I think is probably happening, at least correct me if I'm wrong, but it's at least what you're describing across the UK, is that people, even if they didn't know what living love and faith was, even they didn't know what a general synod was, but all of a sudden, you know, it's in the newspapers, it's in on all the talk shows. I mean, it's it's the it was the decision heard around the world. And, you know, you've got parishioners who, even if they wanted to ignore it, can't. And, you know, there's going to be a period of a backfilling information and or getting up to speed and or really coming to grips with what do you believe, which, um, you know, is, is just as you said, going to be, you know, equal parts exciting, confusing, um, frustrating and uh, clarifying. And I think, um, you know, this is what this is what we're watching y'all go through, um, not with any not with any joy necessarily, but but certainly on the other side of these congregation of these conversations, there will be a clarity that we found freeing, albeit um, it, it does divide. You know, there is a divide that that is will be exposed um, on whether or not you think the actions of General Synod were a good idea or a bad idea. So. Yeah, I think um, I've been encouraging a few um, vicars to be fairly, but just be clear about where they stand um, because we're always nervous about a few people who may really get angry if they then discover that uh, on this issue we are standing with you know the historic church the traditional view but there's also people in our congregations who have obviously read the news they know what's going on and they really want to know well i believe what christians have always believed does my vicar so in some i've been encouraging some clergy to be you know be quicker to be open than they might naturally want to be you know, clergy are so often people pleasers, aren't we? We're always cautious. We want to love the flock, and our minds are always dominated by the people we worried will get cross, rather than people who are waiting for us to give a lead and reassure them that we are standing with orthodoxy. Um, I wanted to ask you about other vicars and your relationship with them. My my cursory look at Google Maps, and again, you can correct yeah. me if I'm wrong. Too is a r- relatively small town that you're in how how are the relationships with other clergy in the area are there a lot of them is it a large group that you're interacting with regularly are you in the majority are you in the minority how are you all interacting with this it's been clarifying with some people so i've been i've been approaching a few other uh vicars to find out say basically saying i think you're probably on the same page as me (laughs) and if so shall we have a chat and that's been that's been helpful. I'm actually going to another church's uh, PCC, their their church council meeting, to talk about this subject. So that if half the PCC hate what I say, at least they can hate me rather than hate their vicar, um, who can kind of watch and work out what he does pastorally afterwards. But I think I mean someone said that the church and the bishops are kind of split a third, kind of orthodox um a third really want to be liberal on these issues and a third uh, want to pursue unity at all costs and i suspect that's kind of 
relatively similar to um, the other churches in, in our patch. There are there's a real variety that there are people um, who are Orthodox, but they've never taught about it at all in their churches. There are some folk, uh, I could think of other parts of the country who might be vicar of a large church, but because they've been kind of avoiding the issue, they might have appointed staff members who have a different view. And suddenly they find themselves falling out with staff members. And, you know, there's a part of me that says, well, you should have seen this one coming. Uh, yeah. You want to you want to check people's orthodoxy on lots of issues before you appoint. But, you know, in our own country, some of the, the kind of big church networks have gone for the let's avoid controversy, let's focus on mission, and we understand the reasons for that. Um, but they have ended up making some kind of maybe unwise appointments. So some feel trapped. And then I can think of somebody uh, I talked to recently Certainly, the Church of England, you have these multi-parish teams. So imagine you're in a group of uh, ten churches, and you're look you kind of you have oversight over three of them, but you're working with perhaps two or three other vicars uh, to run this kind of ten-parish group. How do you work in that context if you're Orthodox? Because you're almost staff rather than in charge. You've got to work with your colleagues. You want to teach your little congregation the truth. As I'm incumbent of, of, of a single parish, I can believe what I believe and not fall out with staff members because um, I don't have any. But if you've got two or three colleagues um, together looking after 10 parishes um, and you've been brought in to be kind of a bit more of an evangelical person, how do you work in that context? It's really hard. I want now to that- encourage people like that. That brings up another question that I'm interested in having, you know, we left the Episcopal Church, Nick and I did both at the same time, basically. But um, for years leading up to then, there was always the concern as to at some point getting so sideways with the bishop, not intentionally, but just theologically, that perhaps there would be a um, danger of being removed or some sort of presentment or some, you know, um, some sort of charges brought up. Is there what what is the what is the kind of security you have or lack thereof um, with respect to uh, assuming your bishop continues or I don't even know who your bishop is, but let's say theoretically he was moving further and further uh, more progressive. What sort of freedoms do you have to to kind of be out of step with him? One of the I think peculiarities of the Church of England is that vicars have quite a lot of power, and if we want to block bishops. We can basically do that quite easily. Now that's plus and minus the, the, the pros and cons. We can kind of get on, plow our own furrow, teach what we want. If the bishop complains, we say, "Well, we just ignore them." We can do that quite happily. And um, there's very little a bishop can can do unless we start running off with the church money. Right. Well, that's... Um, so that gives us a lot of, actually, quite a lot of um, stability and strength. You can fall out relationally, but there's not so much they can do legally. Unless the vicar leaves, and then the bishop has a lot more power to obviously make the appointment for the next person. And I think that some, for some of our churches, that's a real concern. Uh, do we build up our churches to be kind of resisting where the Church of England is heading if the vicar is only planning to be there for a couple more years? That's sort of question people are asking. I plan to be here for ages, so I'm happy to do that. So we fall out relationally with our bishops. And we can ignore them quite safely. And I guess 
historically one of our downsides as evangelicals is that we have ignored the structures so much that we've let it be captured by others. Um, so we do need to play our part within the structures. Our, our diocesan bishop is kind of keeping his cards close to his chest. He's, a, he's very much a unity person, um, and I'm grateful he is not a campaigner. Other bishops, like our area bishops or suffragan bishops, uh, have a variety of views. But we can we can share our opinions with them pretty robustly and not be too worried about being fired the next day. I'm wondering how these these extra Church of England Anglican structures are viewed. Um, when JD and I were in Africa, we met William McMahon, who is the bishop of the ANIE. We've talked to Calvin Robinson, who's in the Free Church of England. Obviously, it's it's not the the quote unquote leaving the church like we did in the Episcopal Church. It seems like it would be a much more complicated proposition for somebody in England than it is for us in America. What how is the relationship how is the relationship? Yeah, I mean I'm I'm delighted to see what Lee people like Lee are up to. Um Lee and I go we actually overlapped briefly at a All Souls Langham place in London and when he passed on the toilet cleaning brushes to me <laughs> um as a as a lay assistant 23 years ago. I think we need to recognize there's there's gonna be some people who feel compelled to leave earlier and others later. I know that's part of trying to be sensitive and understand one another. All credit to what they're doing. Uh, I love the church planting vision. and I pray that God really blessed them. I think part of the Church of England, the uniqueness of the Church of England compared to other parts and communion is that we, in theory, cover the entire country. Uh, so you'll find all these small villages and small towns where kind of the only church is the Church of England. And what do you do if you're in that situation? So if, if you're in a city, um, you can you could kind of leave, set up a new church, and you know you can kind of fill the niche of Anglican but not Church of England. Uh, part of the problem in for most of the country outside the big cities is can you do that? If you're in a if you're in a town where half the congregation have been going since they were five years old and they're now eighty five, and um, they've got a loyalty to their building that's that's quite profound. In some villages, there will be no other community space to meet in. Uh, if you're the vicar of six parishes somewhere and you want to leave and you think maybe 10 people might go with you from across the 35 people you ministered to regularly, that's, and you can't, and you can't um, draw on converting some of the thousands of other people who live in your parish because there aren't, there are a couple hundred. Mm. So I think that's one of the real tensions. Uh, for me, one of the reasons to stay in the Church of England, and uh, I do wrestle with this all the time, is there are con there are so many people in the Church of England who are still really badly taught. And it's not that they've rejected the truth. They just never really heard Christ being heralded from the pulpit and the Bible open and the wonder of the gospel. I think a lot of us in the Church of England do feel for those people and for our congregations who we've nurtured perhaps over the years. Yeah. So we, we see in the big cities... I think the cities are, are easier to make an alternative form of Anglicanism. I think in most towns and villages, uh, where there is a church building presence, how do you viably set up an alternative without the building, without the financial backing? I think it's a really tough one. It doesn't make it impossible. It might be that we do need to leave and face these questions head on one day. Um, but while while there are folk who need teaching, um, I want to see them taught 
and trying to kind of capture things back for the gospel. But one of the phrases I've been saying here is I don't know if the Church of England is doomed. I think it's doomed if we don't fight. Past me would love to leave the Church of England and just not have these battles all the time. But the congregation here need a shepherd. Yeah. I'm here to be their shepherd for the time being. But then you get questions about what's the future? What, 10 years' time, 20 years' time? And I, uh, when I meet with other clergy who are absolutely uh, committed to orthodoxy, committed to telling bishops they got things completely wrong, <laughs> we look at each other and think, um, it's quite tough, isn't it? Is there an obvious way forward? I don't think so. Yeah, that brings me the question because, you know, there's most notably some of these larger evangelical congregations. I forget the names, actually, but I know that they were withholding money as a result of the um, Synod vote. Uh, one of the vicars was at GAFCON. I forget his name, but he had a wonderful thing about um, the Church of England was going to be like a like a turnip field or something like an un, I forget the phrase, but I was like, that's a very English witticism, but um, <laughs> you know, so there's, there's that type of defensive measure that obviously is being taken. Um, and I'm not suggesting that you do any of the things that you may want to tell us, but if one wanted to um, join the fight as a small church, what would that look like? Would you, I mean, other than strongly worded letters to um, the local editor of the paper or whatever. Yeah. So, I mean, I've, um, uh, it's all hypothetical, of course. All hypothetical. <laughs> if my bishop listens to this, who knows what he'll say. Um, I mean, I, I had a meeting with people yesterday where we talked about issues of finance and the Church of England. And I didn't have a genius answer that would solve anything, um, but we were having that conversation. I've also been uh, represented the, the Diocese Evangelical Fellowship, um, six of us, the, the group is much bigger than the six, but six of us went to speak to our bishops and we were pretty plain speaking with them. Uh, I might have suggested there were some false teachers in the room, um, which may or may have not gone down so well. So here's the, here's kind of the a very standard situation. Uh, you're a Church of England vicar. You're paying, I don't know, £35,000 a year uh, towards the diocese. But actually the diocese reckons it costs £55,000 a year to have a a a vicar, if you include pensions and salaries and training new vicars and so on. So is it right to suspend payment to the diocese when effectively you're paying, sending money in to come back and pay you? Mm. Now, we've got different views. So some in that meeting yesterday were saying, yes, it is right. I mean, we have false teacher bishops who get paid. So why can't good teacher vicars get paid, even if we're not paying back into the, the central pot? It's a way of making a protest. We can write letters. I've drafted letters on behalf of others a few times. Um, but uh, you get a polite response. If you stop paying, suddenly bishops are forced to deal with you. And there are churches in that situation. So, so there are some churches like ours who are small, but are thinking these things through. For me right now, it's very much in my head rather than a conversation I've had with the church council. But we need to get our bishops to sit up and take note that something serious has happened. Right. And they keep on using the walking together language. And we're saying, but we're not walking That's together. Right. And and then they say, yes, we really hear what you're saying. It's good to be keep on walking together. <laughs> and sometimes, sometimes the only thing to make them sit up and pay attention is to say, this money is going to stop flowing until you actually talk to us properly. Right. Yeah, that um, brings me, it's another question I had. Um, was the vote... 
uh, the general synod vote a surprise for you or was it just an inevitability that you kind of assumed or um, what was the like feeling on the ground there? The feeling on the ground was I talked to a few people who were there. Um, I mean, the vote was quite close. If I think about six or seven lay people that voted the other way, huh. Bishop's proposal would have been um, rejected. We're not entirely sure what was voted for. So I said to my congregation uh, and the people here at the church, it feels like everything's changed and nothing's changed. So technically, nothing actually changed. The bishops went off to write some more things and revise their prayers and start working on some guidance. Um, and the General Synod said, well, we need to make sure it's in line with current te- Church of England teaching. Now, what are they going to come back to us with? So at the moment, these prayers of love and faith have not been authorised. Uh, to his credit, our diocesan bishop has said, by the way, folks, these are not yet authorised. Don't use them if you're inclined to use them. So what has actually legally changed? In theory, nothing. But then, of course, you get Archbishop York and others saying, hooray, this is fantastic, a step towards greater inclusion. So we know what they're doing. Nothing's technically changed. I wasn't surprised by the vote, but it just kind of pushes things to the next synod. Okay, bishops, go away, write your documents, bring them back. What are you going to say? And we thought this would be June, or we thought this would be July, but now it's saying, well, maybe they'll be November. Maybe it'll be next February or next July. Um, so it's a long, drawn-out process, and I feel caught between kind of praying and planning and working so that um, the bishops don't write something terrible, but also the kind of acknowledgement that they probably will. <laughs> and, and how do we how do we live with that tension? Um, how do we keep on waiting for something six months, a 12-month time, um, without it getting so distracting that we forget to just get, get on with teaching our folk the scriptures, opening up Jesus, trying to reach our parishes. Um, there's a lot of hardship and waiting, and it's quite draining at times as well. Though, though I'm sometimes sorely tempted to go and leave the church thing and, and join a grouping where not only do they, I mean, the church thing technically has really great teaching, just that nobody upholds it or nobody says, uh, says naughty boy when people do the wrong thing. So part of, there's part of me that love to leave these debates behind, but the reality is I think every church is going to face them. Uh, right. Every Christian is going to face these things. Uh, in a sense, vicars are got the safest position because if half my church leave tomorrow, I still get paid. Uh, whereas if you're a Christian working for the in the public sector in this country, you can lose your job if you don't wear the rainbow lanyard. So there's no safe place, as it were, to avoid these conversations. Um, and I think the other, some other churches outside the Church of England recognise that because the Church of England officially teaches that marriage is between a man and a woman, it does kind of give them some security. The Church of England belief is part of the law of the land, in theory. If the Church of England crumbles, then other churches will find their position much harder. Mm. Interesting. Well, it seems like that's actually, you know, from several thousand miles away and across an ocean, the the reaction to the general synod vote and the bishops' press conference statements about it was that nobody was happy. The conservatives the world over thought, oh, they're perhaps they're not performing 
same-sex marriages in the Church of England, but they're writing blessings for it. It's the same thing. And the liberals were saying this is not nearly far enough because, as you say, the official teaching of the Church of England is still that marriage is between a man and a woman. So um, no one's happy. Everybody's angry. And um, I just don't see how that can can stand for very long. I think one of the things that um, w- uh, was upsetting was the level of deceit coming out from the House of Bishops or the College of Bishops, um, trying to say, hey, look at these prayers. Um, they're magic prayers. They give you what you want, but don't do anything different than normal. Our bishops have been trying to avoid clarity for such a long time. They've been saying, we're having these conversations, shared conversation, we're going through the LF process, and let's not say anything definitive. Of course, normally the evangelical bishops are the ones who kind of follow the rules and and don't campaign. Often it's the liberal bishops who break the rules and, and do campaign, and that's one of the struggles we've been in. But I think the deceptive, the deceptive voice has been so painful to see. I was really glad with the um, Kigali commitment to see that phrase about these blessings are, was it blasphemous and pastorally deceptive or something like that? Mm-hmm. That was a good phrase to use because our bishops are trying to, they're trying to say. Yeah. Pastorally deceptive and blasphemous. That was it, yeah. That was a good phrase. It was um, good. And I think I need to write, I mean, I think I need to write to our bishops and say, yeah, point that out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's it's really painful when you see bishops basically lying to your face, mm. saying this upholds church and doctrine, doesn't it? Really? No. Um, I'm trying to push bishops to say, what do you actually believe? Like, be, just be honest, be truthful about where you actually think. Do you think sex outside of marriage is right or wrong? Right. If you think it can be right, why wh- why that and why not the other thing? And, That's right. Well, we watched this. Yeah. We watched this for. 20 years, yeah. I mean, personally, and it's been going on longer and have often remarked that, you know, the bishops that tried to um, take a middle ground uh, were the, like the most pitiable of all, you know, saying things like, well, mm-hmm. I personally am against it, but I want to allow it in my diocese or, or perhaps, you know, that we're still in a time of discernment and we need to, you know, we're going to seek clarity on this issue and all of this obfuscation. Whereas, you know, the bishops who actually had a convicted disagreement and said, you know what, like, I've changed my mind. I believe that marriage should not be limited to a man and a woman in holy matrimony. And therefore, as a bishop, I'm going to exercise my responsibility by making sure that the clergy of my diocese get in line. You know, there's obviously that was a, not a, a safe harbor for, for people like us. But nevertheless, there was at least some respect um, from that position to say, well, you have that responsibility and that is your conviction. As much as I disagree with it, there's at least some respect um, shown uh, because you're exercising some courage in that conviction. And so it's really, to your point, it's it's been it's been sort of the most pathetic to watch um, these kind of halfway measures that people take, which are so clearly politically motivated and not um, even ideologically um, or much less theologically. And, um, you know, that those type supposedly moderating position is going to quickly um, give way if it if it hasn't already, because, you know, we've talked about a long time on this podcast the well, to use the phrase, the binary nature of this issue, you know, it leaves very little 
room for a middle ground. And there's some very clarifying um, fruit on the other side of this one way or the other. And I think, um, you know, it is uncomfortable and it can be very, uh, it can, you know, no one likes to be disagreeable, or at least many people don't. But at the end of the day, it really does come down to whether or not you think um, God has spoken in this area or not. And, you know, this is what we're going to continue to see across the the world. I mean, I, for one, when we were in Kigali, and I mentioned this, I think, um, last week, but bears repeating, you know, when I listened to the Archbishop of Nigeria read this, the Kigali commitment, and he he began with the 25 years of um, appeals since Lambeth 98, you know, that maps over against my kind of adult Christian life almost exactly. Um, 98 was when I was a junior in college and had just come back to the faith for my own and was starting to get into um, what I now understand to be Anglicanism, but at the time it was the Episcopal Church. And and I was overwhelmed by a sense of, um, you know, sort of not nostalgia is not the word, but there was a sense in which this has been the the the, the length of time and the appeals and the process and the the all of the drama that that he was recounting. I've been walking through and living through, and I'm not the only one, of course, but just personally speaking, it was a moment of real poignancy when at the end he said, "And we have." We the Archbishop of Canterbury, I think he says, has now abdicated. He didn't use the word abdicated, but oh, this renders his leadership role in the Anglican community mm-hmm. entirely indefensible. And I was sitting there saying, well, goodness, it really has been 25 years since that has been implied, but now it's being explicitly stated. And I don't know exactly what's going to happen on the other side, but um, certainly that was um, that that was a decision that was not made lightly or or quickly in any, in, by any definition, and yet. Here we are, you know, and I think it's uh, um, it's going to be something to behold on how this all settles out on the other side. Yeah, I think um, I want uh, evangelicals and and um, an Orthodox folk in the Church of England to recognise we are in, we are in dire straits. And I think a lot of people have been kind of hoping that things aren't as bad as they were. So I want people to and and to and to recognise also that the kind of well, let's agree to disagree. Isn't going to work. Uh, I was in new, you know, new houses law. If it's if orthodoxy is optional, it's not long before it's prohibited. That is where inertia will take us, unless we um, resist. Now, I think um, compared to probably America, Scotland, uh, in contrast to um, Scotland and Wales, the evangelical consistency uh, uh, constituency here is stronger than the same constituency in other provinces but we do need to work together now the time may come when we actually see a lot of departures from the church of england but in recent months we have seen a lot of evangelicals kind of waking up to what's happening a lot of formerly you know kind of more conservative and the more charismatic evangelicals who normally are suspicious of each other working together much more strongly praying together meeting together um, resisting bishops moves together so I think hopefully some bishops in the Church of England have realised oh there's more opposition to this than we thought so I think the dangers are higher than most people realise but the call to resist I think we still have speaking at kind of purely human level I think we still have more strength than we realise if we work together and plan together and resist together so in one sense it's time for evangelicals to really to stand up be counted count the cost um try to take this church of england 
back and 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 sort of bishops taking us in the wrong direction that's what people are that's what our, you know, keith sinclair and others are calling us to do but there's always the back of the mind um of will it work and i i don't want to be the person who in 10 years time thinks i should have gone earlier but at the same time i don't want to be the sort of person who says i jumped too soon actually you know if six lay people had changed their vote at general synod the bishop's motion would have been rejected now, what if the next synod we convince six people to change their vote? It just feels a bit kind of. Uh, I listened to the Calvin Robinson episode, and he's obviously very clearly encouraging us all to leave. I think I don't think we're there yet, but I hope I'm not wrong. Mm-hmm. It does seem like we're sort of rushing toward an inflection point a little bit. I was reflecting just now your split of the clergy into one-third evangelical, one-third sort of really progressive, and one-third just wanting to, I think you said unity at all costs, and you yeah. said that you, you keep hearing the, we need to walk together, we need to walk together. I It feels to me in some sense, and I wonder if you two agree, that that third there that's wanting to walk together and have unity at all costs, don't you kind of feel... Like they're just hoping to get to retirement before the whole thing blows up (laughs) and that before too long, the walking together in good disagreement crowd will be retired and we're only going to be left with the edges. Yeah, there's real danger. I think, you know, Lambeth Palace's response to the Kigali commitments, I I said this slightly flippantly, was basically blah, 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 walking together. In Darbo, in Darbo. We, we keep saying, we keep saying, I keep saying, this is a major, major issue that we cannot work together. We cannot agree to disagree. And so much the answer, so much people respond just saying, yeah, it's really important to keep listening to each other, isn't it? And walking together. And it does feel like you're banging your head against a brick wall. I think the um, next generation doesn't feel that way. They're They're going to say, we don't want anything to do with you people. You're you're homophobes and you're evil and you're not part of us. I, I it, it just feels well, like the hooey middle is going to vanish sometime soon. Yeah, and maybe this is the time when we need to preach and teach in our local congregations that you know everything that Jesus teaches about is good for us, even when it calls us to. Uh, serious repentance and change of life and denial of self and so on and you know every vicar who's vaguely orthodox probably needs to realize that if we're not teaching publicly on this now um, it's going to get hard it's only going to get harder to teach on it and i feel the 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 nervousness about that because i know the more i teach about it the more some people will really object but we have to be clear and show that Jesus really is good news. Amen. Amen to that. And thanks, as always, for listening to Stand Firm this week. Uh, If you'd like to keep the conversation going with us, you can be in touch, rate and review the podcast on iTunes, send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com or join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thanks to J.D. Koch and Tim Vasby-Bernie. Matt Kennedy will hopefully rejoin us next time. I'm Nick Lannon and Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. (music) 